You don't love God? What's wrong with you? Y'all, some of y'all heard it. Amen. Amen. If you don't love God, you have a problem. Amen. Because he is all that I need. And I'm using for a topic this morning very simply. He's an unpopular God to some. But I love him and I need him. I don't know about you. I don't know what your story is today. But I know that I need him and I love him. Amen. We'll read that scripture again, Genesis 22 and 14. And Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh, and it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. Now the New Living Translation says it this way. Abraham named the place Yahweh-Jireh, which means the Lord will provide. And to this day, people still use the name as a proverb. On the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. And as I watch the news, and I'm sure some of you look at the news every now and then, it seems like America is becoming uh, publicly ashamed to express their love for God. Despite that, the fact the nation itself was built upon godly principles and founded by men and women who were seeking religious freedom. And predicated on godly ideas, the nation has drifted away from open, open expressions of godliness. And then there are those who want to remove under God from the Pledge of Allegiance. I'm sure some of you heard that. And then there are others who want to take out in God we trust from the currency. And then there's great debates in hundreds of cities across America as to whether prayers can be said in school. And I say this all the time. They tell us that prayer was taken out of school. But it really wasn't taken out because if you are a believer, you can sit at your desk Amen. You can be in a crowded room and still talk to God. Amen. So, so that's, the enemy would have you to believe that there's no praying going on in school. I know I pray every day. Amen. And dealing with some of y'all's children, you have to pray. Amen. <laughs> Amen. By God. But those, those who openly express faith in God, sometimes we get called names like far right or religious fanatics, borderline nutcases. And it's not that it's politically correct these days. A lot of folks say it's not politically correct to say Merry Christmas because we don't want to offend anybody. Or we can't say Jesus is the reason for the season. Well, I guess the next step being dubbed politically incorrect is for faith in God to be declared wrong as it has been outlawed in a whole lot of nations other than America. But if we're not careful, we're going to end up at the same place. Because it's time for those of us who are believers, the body of Christ, to stand up and be a witness. Amen. Not be ashamed. To express faith in God. It seems like it's becoming unfashionable, to say the least. But but there are many, there are many who hear the words of the scripture that was recorded in Deuteronomy 6 and 5, which reminds us that we should love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And as Christians, we should be able to openly express our love for God and for Jesus Christ, his son. But but the text this morning, it concludes uh, the description of the patriarch Abraham's decision to comply with the command of God that he sacrifices his own son, Isaac. And the willingness of, of Abraham to obey God is one of the greatest examples of faith that we will find in the Bible. When Abraham travels to the mountain, He carried with him the essentials for sacrifice. He had the fire, he had the firewood, and his son. 
And Abraham's obedience is often referenced, but there is a wealth of importance, my God, that the question that was asked by his son Isaac. He said, Daddy, I see the firewood. I, I see that you have all the other essentials for a sacrifice. But where is the lamb? Ah. And Abraham's reply was prophetic. He said, my son, my God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. And with this promise from God, Abraham was content. Every now and then we need to just learn how to be content. When God said he's going to do something, he's not going to do it because we want to rush him to do it, but he'll do it on his own time. How many of you know that he may not come when you want him? Ah, but he's always right on time. So as, as we look at this story, his prediction or his prophetic statement was amplified with further details as time went on. And this was the type or a shadow of Jesus Christ who would be brought before us as a lamb being led to slaughter for the transgressions of your and my sins. But just before he sacrificed Isaac, God showed Abraham a ram caught in the bush. Ah, oh my God. And he named that place Jehovah-Jireh, the Lord will provide. But the power of this text is in the name that Abraham gave the place. Because it is commonly reported that Jehovah-Jireh means God will provide. But it's just as important to know the full meaning of the name in Hebrew, which is the Lord sees and he foresees. Now, in the Hebrew Bible, it is translated to see or to appear. And it is often used to refer to certain people who could foresee, such as the prophets. And obviously, there might have been some confusion as how the word to see can then now be translated to provide. And unless we consider the, the nature, first of all, of an almighty God who is El Shaddai, which means that God is the all-sufficient one. I mean, you don't have to, if you got God, you don't need nothing else. But it is God who is El who helps us. And it's God who is Shaddai who abundantly blesses us with all manner of blessings. One commentator said that the idea of one who is all-powerful and almighty is implied for only an all-powerful one could be all-sufficient and all-bountiful. But he is almighty because he is able to carry out his purposes. He's almighty because he's able to carry out his plans to their fullest and to their most glorious and triumphant completion. So he is able, God is able then to save us to the uttermost. He is also able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above anything that we could ask or think anything that our little mind, that we think we know everything. You know, there's a lot of folks that go to college, get all their degrees and everything, and they think they know more than God. You better be careful with that because that's how the devil got kicked out of heaven. Amen. Thought he knew more than God. But it's important to note here that to experience God's sufficiency as our all-sufficient El Shaddai, we must then realize our own insufficiency. To experience God's fullness as he has revealed himself through his names, we, we must first empty ourselves, that, that, that is make ourselves empty vessels. So that the El Shaddai can then come and fill us and use us. I, 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 I realize that when we're staring lack in the face, when we're staring inadequacy and shortage, 
when we're staring want in the face. That's a real good time to remember that we have an all-powerful God who dwells in abundance, who dwells in plenty, who dwells in sufficiency and in wealth. So, so in the Hebrew, the phrase Yahweh Yara for provide means the Lord sees. And for God to see is for him to also foresee. And as the one who possesses eternal wisdom and knowledge, he knows the end from the beginning, my God, from eternity to eternity, he foresees everything. Who wouldn't want to serve a God like that? Who's able to see and know what you need before you can even ask? And he's a God that gives us what we need, not what we want. See, I know a lot of y'all get upset because God don't give you what you want. Ah, but he ain't going to always give you what you want. But he definitely, if you trust him, will give you what you need. My God. In the Old Testament, the people of Israel were commanded to worship the Lord in his holy mountain three times a year. In the next Exodus 23 and 17, it tells us that God commanded men to appear before the Lord for worship and to bring their sacrifices. Now, this is described as being seen by God. And to be seen or taken seriously, the believer needed to worship and sacrifice. And in return with their worship and their sacrifice, God would be seen as he provided for them. Those who did not worship and sacrifice, they didn't expect to be seen by God. But Abraham, Abraham, Abraham came to the mountain willing to sacrifice everything he had to please God. And in this instance, it was necessary for him to do so. But God saw the willingness that Abraham had. And so therefore, since he knew Abraham was willing to kill his own son for him, to give up everything he had, God provided a way out. Ah, this is the main point of the text. Abraham becomes a believer who seriously desires to please God in every way even to the extent of actually sacrificing his only son. But in the same context, we are shown God's response to worship and sacrifice of the provisions that we need. The text shows God looking at the worship and the sacrifice of the believer, then providing the needed blessings based on that evaluation. What are you saying, Steve? Well, because he both sees and needs and supplies our response should be, he is seen as our Jehovah Jireh, our provider. When God promised Abraham a son, he believed the promise and it was counted unto him for righteousness. The Bible says he staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but as strong in his faith and given all glory and praise to God. Now, having received this son, having realized the truth of the promise, I thought about it. I said, is there any danger in this for Abraham? Would he then begin to start believing in the gift rather than the giver? You know, we got a lot of folk in church that, that you may have a gift to do something. And you forget about that. It's God that gave you the gift. You forget about the giver because you start puffing your own self up, thinking it's all about you. That's a very dangerous place to be in because God will slip the rug right out from under you, amen, make you fall flat on your face. But, but in thinking about this, I wonder if Abraham thought about his inheritance would be lost rather than relying upon God. And surely there was, and God knew that. And therefore, he tries his servant in a way. More than anything calculated, he put him to the test to see if Abraham really relied on his own self or did he really believe in God. But the, the grand inquiry and the biggest question that was put to Abraham's heart was, uh, are you still walking 
and believing in an almighty God. God, the quickener of the dead. And God desired to know whether Abraham could apprehend uh, and, and really believe him and sacrifice his only son. In, in other words, God desired to prove that Abraham's faith reached forth to resurrection. What are you talking about, Steve? Well, for it's, if it stopped at that, he never would have responded to the startling command when the Lord told him in Genesis 22 and 2. He says, take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. Abraham trusted God so much, he's going on, God ain't even told him exactly where he's going yet. And so the Bible says, but Abraham staggered not. He at once responded to the call. God asked for Isaac, and Isaac must be given. And the word staggered here, it means that he was, wasn't astonished. He wasn't deeply shocked by God's request. Why? Because Abraham had been walking with God all along. He didn't swell, he didn't stumble from the promise of God because he knew that his faith rested upon the Almighty God. And this is evidence when Abraham points this journey to his uh, Mount Moriah. He says, I am the lad. Now watch, watch what he does. He leaves everybody else down at the foot of the mountain. He says, I am the lad, talking about him and his son Isaac. We were going to go yonder and worship. Yes, it was an act of worship. He was going to lay Isaac upon the altar to prove to heaven and hell that there was no other object in his life that was so important that would separate him from, from serving God. So, so Abraham, he saddles the ass, he prepares the wood, sets off for Mount Moriah. And as this man of faith ascends the mountain, taking with him his well-beloved son, we also see how the angelic host watched this whole thing unfold. The son, which he has so longed for, which he has so steadily asked God for, right about now would be a good time for the devil to sneak in. Because Abraham is He's showing God that, yeah, God, I trust you. Yes, I'm going, I'm going to sacrifice my son. I'm going to do what you're asking me to do. But then here comes Satan, just like he does with us every now and then. You're trying to do your very best for God. You think you're doing all right. You ain't cussed nobody out all week long. <laughs> Amen. And so you're going forth and you say, I got it together. Me and God got this. And here come the devil. <laughs> Tricking you up. And y'all know he do steal trickers because that's what his job is. But I can, I can imagine Satan saying to Abraham, now, Abraham, if you do this, what's going to become of the promises that God gave you regarding the seed and your inheritance? Are you sure you're not being led astray by some false revelation, Abraham? Because if this be true and God says so and so, don't God know that the day you sacrifice your son, that all of your hopes and your dreams are going to be over? Don't that sound just like Satan? You're trying to do the right thing and here he come. Then he says, furthermore, uh, Abraham, what do you think Sarah going to say if she loses Isaac? After having persuaded you to evict your house of Ishmael, your other son. And I can just imagine in my mind that through these suggestions and many more, the enemy probably tried to throw him at him. Abraham was beyond uh, any of those thoughts because he was looking at the resurrection. Abraham was able to see farther than what Satan was trying to do to him. Hebrews 11 and 17 through 19 says this. By faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac, and he that had received the promise offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called. 
Now, accounting that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure, resurrection is where it starts taking place right here. Resurrection is God's mighty remedy for all of the mess that we get ourselves caught up in. Ah, God, thank you for the resurrection. When, when Satan tried to help uh, make us stumble in our faith walk, God helps us to look toward the resurrection. Because when you arrive at this point in your life, you will deal with Satan. I tell folk at Christian Love all the time, if the devil ain't bothering you, because he already got you. So if you ain't never having no problems in your life, everything's just hunky-dory, you're fooling yourself. Because the Bible tells us that we will have trials. We will have tribulations. But if everything is just always smooth in your life, you better be careful. Because maybe you ain't really serving God. Satan might already have you. That's why he ain't messing with you. Amen. But when you arrive to this point, just know this, that there is nothing when you are a real true believer in God. When you, when you know that you mess up, but you still know God is able to forgive you. There is nothing that Satan can do that can t- t- uh, turn you from the, the love of God or from the resurrection. All power is given unto me. See, Satan thought he had, he thought he had held Jesus down in the grave. Uh, when he, he said, uh, God proved Satan wrong, though, when, he, when Jesus made this statement. Jesus said, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. He says, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And then he told, told Satan, he said, I got the keys of hell and of death. You ought to tell yourself this morning, beyond resurrection, there ain't a thing the devil can do to me. Ah, come on, say that to yourself. Beyond resurrection, there ain't a thing the devil can do to me. The Bible says this, your life is hidden with Christ in God. You not only have a God that provides, but you also have a God who has a blessed hiding place in Jesus Christ. Look at what Psalms 91 and 1 says. He that dwelleth in the secret place, my God, of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Now, some would think that God wasn't right for asking Abraham to do such a thing. But do you know how foolish that sounds to, to doubt God's infinite wisdom? Psalms 147 and 5 tells us, great is our Lord of great power. His understanding is infinite. The tests of life are not for an omniscient God, but they're for us. So we can realize and come to the realization of what we're really made of. Abraham learned that there was nothing between him and his God. Not even the one thing he treasured the most on the earth, which was his son. And God used his opportunity to confirm the commitment to fulfill his promise to Abraham. And based on Abraham's act of obedience, y'all ought to get ready to shout right about here. Genesis 22, 5 and 8, 15 and 18 says, And the angel of the Lord called unto Abraham out of heaven a second time. Here's the second time he's calling him. He said, And by myself I have sworn, said the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of heaven and as the sand which is upon the seashore. And thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in thy seed shall all the nations, oh my God, I fall under that part, all the nations will be blessed because thou hast obeyed my voice. Somebody ought to shout thank you right there because you're being blessed because of Abraham's act of obedience. Abraham believed and he obeyed God. 
But this combination of belief and obedience pleased God to the fulfillment of his covenant with Abraham. And here we are centuries later, centuries later under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul and James both cite Abraham as support for the doctrine that they used when they were starting the early churches. For Abraham, the promises might have meant Mount Moriah. To Isaac, the promises was Mount Gerar. To Jacob, the promises meant Bethel and Beersheba, my God. For the whole nation of Israel, the promises meant Mount Sinai. Now, I don't know what city or what mountain you might have today that you need to call on, my God. But God is going to, if you're going to really experience God's sufficiency, you got to first realize your own insufficiency. I heard Jesus say in 2 Corinthians 12 and 9, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made in weakness. Paul said, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest upon me. Genesis 5 and 22 notes that Enoch walked with God. I'm closing with this. When you walk with God, God, the believers who walk with God, we might not have time to go through the whole long list of all the different names. When our strength is failing, we may not remember to call him El Shaddai, the almighty God. But there is a name, God. When we are walking through the valley of a shadow of death, we may not remember to call Jehovah Roha. But the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. But there is a name. When we are feeling like we're making the journey alone, we may not remember Emmanuel, the everlasting God, but there is a name. Because we walk with the Lord, he has given us a name to call on. We can call him on a first name basis. There is no hyphen. You ain't even got to put Mr. before it. One name says it all. If you know the God for yourself, you can call on the name Jesus. No wonder the songwriter declared. And I used to hear my grandfather sing this when I was a little boy. I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses. He said, and the voice I hear ringing in my ear, the son of God discloses. He says, and he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me that I'm his own. Then he says, and the joy that we share as we tarry there, none other have ever known. There is a name that reaches beyond the narrow confines of my loneliness and brings me comfort. There is a name that reaches below my deepest failure and guides me to success. There is a name that transcends my weakness and brings me strength. In the name of Jesus, there is no other name by which men must be saved but the name of Jesus. No wonder the songwriter wrote, there is a name I love to hear. I love to sing its worth. He said, it sounds like music in my ear, the sweetest name on earth. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Why? Because he first loved me. He may be unpopular to some, but in my life, I know I need him and I love him. Why? Because he is my provider. Somebody might call him a way maker. He's a heart fixer and a mind regulator. That's what the old folks used to say. He's a will in the middle of a will. He is a provider. He's in everything you need. God will provide. Some might call him El Shaddai. Some call him Adonai. Some call him Elohim. Some call him Yahweh Jireh. Some call him Jehovah Rapha. Some call him Jehovah Nisi. Some call him Jehovah Shalom. Some call him Jehovah Tsikhanu. I call him Jesus. Ain't nobody like Jesus. There is power in the name Jesus. 
I dare you to just call on his name. Things begin to happen when you call the name Jesus. Bless your name, God. Bless your name, God. He's able to do exceedingly and abundantly. Above anything we can ask for, just call on the name Jesus. The next time you find yourself with your back against the wall, I dare you to just call on Jesus. And watch how Satan begin to back up off you. You can look at the devil and say, back that thing up, bro. Get off of me. Bless your name. Bless your name. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. With every head bow and every eye closed.